Almighty God, we come before you, Father. You're our Father. You've adopted us into your family, those of us that are here that know you. You've made us your own children. And so whether we're seated in chairs right now or kneeling here at the front of the church, Lord, we, through Jesus, we actually have come into your very throne room. The very place where God dwells. Place where there's grace. Grace to receive in time of need. You're a great God, an all-powerful God. You can do anything. You've spoke the world into existence and you gave us life. And Lord, with all this power, Lord, you've, you've chosen to use your power to, to redeem us from sin at the cost of your son whom you rose from the grave and is seated at your right hand. And we pray that he'll come soon, Lord Jesus. But until he comes, we pray that the reality of the kingdom would be more visible in the world in which we live even now. Lord, that you would make that reality clear, Lord, as, as we preach the gospel and proclaim the gospel as we go back to school. Lord, we pray for our school teachers and our students that are going back to the public schools, the private schools, and even as homeschooling starts up and all these different means, Lord, we pray that, uh, Lord, you would help us to see our friend groups and our, our uh, classmates, our co-workers, no matter where we're at, Lord, see those places as our mission field because you are coming soon to repay each one what, according to what he's done with you. So, Father, give us that sense of urgency. We pray this morning for Miles Paris. Lord, as he is doing better but still is not doing well, Father, we pray that you'd heal his body. Be with his mother, Marva, and his, his brother, Slater, and the rest of his family, his friends, his classmates, and his teachers. Lord, I pray that you would comfort them. And Lord, that through this, that, that not only would he be healed, but anyone in the whole situation that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would, you would bring that about in their hearts. We pray for Miss Jill this morning, how we love her and her daughter Mandy. And Lord, we pray for, pray for them and their family as they, as they mourn the passing of Frank. Lord, somewhat prepared, but at the same time, they're going to miss him. Looking forward to seeing him again. And Father, we pray that, we pray that you would comfort them this morning. We thank you that Frank knew you and was trusting in you. Father, we pray that that'd be true about everybody here. There, there wouldn't be one funeral service that we would go to amongst those that are here this morning where we wouldn't be sure if this person ever really trusted in you based on what they said or how they lived. We just, we just wouldn't be sure. Father, we pray that everyone here would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So Father, now magnify your name. Continue to do so as we take up this offering and and as we use it to extend your kingdom, and Lord, as the word is preached, magnify the name of Jesus, we ask. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
children, you can be dismissed for children's church. Amen. Thank you, Miss Marcia. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles. Amen. If you would take your Bible this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. There should be a Bible underneath a chair you're sitting in or one of the chairs close to you. If you would take that Bible and stand with me and turn to Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading at verse 24. Matthew chapter 16. I'll begin reading at verse 24 through the end of that chapter. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray together. Again, Father, I we pray that to you through your son, Jesus, we ask that you would please speak to us and help us understand what the word means.
In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. Well, much like reading a good book that you just can't put down, you know, and reading this book and you just can't wait to get to the next chapter, just can't put the book down. Uh, many people nowadays are caught up in, you know, cinematic dramas that are designed to do just the same thing. You just can't wait for the next episode. In fact, streaming networks like Hulu and Amazon and Netflix have made it easy to do what we call binge watching, where you just can't get to the next episode and Man, you ain't even got to wait till next week anymore. You can just watch it all night long if you want to because you just can't wait. You're so caught up in the drama. It's kind of a, a way of escaping for a while. Well, while books and TV series kind of help escape from reality for a little bit, the truth is that human nature's tendency is to also get caught up in the drama of life. Well, we're so caught up in that and we forget about some things that are important. We're concerned about, you know, just like somebody reading a book, what's going to happen next or watching a TV show. We're concerned about our life, about what's going to happen next, the very next thing. Will my son pass his driving test? How long is the preacher going to preach? How long is the line going to be at the restaurant today? Am I going to like my teachers this year? Am I going to do well on my exams and come late fall? Is my coworker going to give me a hard time tomorrow? How's my doc doctor's appointment going to go? Am I going to have any cavities? Am I going to go to the dentist on Tuesday? How we live our lives and what happens next, no, all that's important. And in fact, it's of monumental importance to us. But our problem is we're caught up in this drama of life. And the reason that's a problem is this, is that Jesus calls us to follow him to lose our life for his sake. We're caught up in the drama of life, but if you look at verse 24 and 25, we're called to lose our life, not be caught up in the drama of it. Look at verse 24 again, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a person that's not caught up in the drama of their own life. Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We're not called to get caught up in the drama of life. The problem with it is we're called to lose our life and follow Jesus. So Jesus leads the disciples here at a place called Caesarea Philippi, kind of a far out of the way place. He leads the disciples uh, to really a crossroads and begins to address some questions and some important topics with them to help them understand that who he is and what it is he's going to do and what, that's, what that means for their own life. And just as Jesus leads the disciples to this crossroads at Caesarea Philippi, he's leading us to a crossroads as well. We're faced with a decision, just as the disciples are, by the grace of God, if we make the right one. We're faced with a decision whereby we must either say, it's my life, and I'm going to do with it what I want. It's my life, and I'm going to maximize my enjoyment of it. Or... We say, my life belongs to Christ. And I want to magnify him with all of it. I'm either going to come to this crossroads, going to maximize my enjoyment of life, pursuing my own pleasures, or my life belongs to Christ and I'm going to maximize or I'm going to live to magnify Jesus with all of it. So, 
I'm going to draw you another picture this morning that might be helpful, okay? Something I was thinking about just to kind of help you see these crossroads a little bit. You know, in Scripture, Jesus talks in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, he talks about a narrow road and a broad road, don't he? And uh, the fact of the matter is, we all start off on the broad road. So let's just pretend this is a road right here, okay? This is a road of life. But every single one of us in here, we're on this by nature. That's how we're born. We're not born right with God. We're born going away from God. We're all on the same road. But sooner or later, there's a crossroads we need to come to. And one of these roads is narrow. And it's got some pits and valleys in it. And the other crossroad we come to just kind of keeps going. It's broad. Ain't nothing you got to do. You just kind of keep, keep going. So that's the crossroads of life. This is, this is Caesarea Philippi. This is what Jesus is leading the disciples to, all right? That's not a great drawing, but it's about the best I can do, all right? So this is the crossroads. Are we on the narrow road? Are we on the broad road? You know, if we just say, you know, I want to live and maximize the enjoyment of life, then we just kind of keep what we're doing. We suppress uh, the knowledge of God and we keep, what, keep on doing what we're doing. Our life is no different than anybody else's. Or we come to the point in life where we, we see the beauty of Christ, the ugliness of our sin, and by the grace of God, we say, I'm going to follow Christ. Not many people are on this road, but I'm going to follow Christ. So here I am. Here's this guy here. He's got a big smile on his face. See there? You probably can't see that smiley face, but that's what he is. He's happy, all right? And this guy over here, he's happy too. Because no matter what happens to him, the most important thing that's happened to him is not going to change. And that his sins have been forgiven. But it's going to be hard because on his back, I don't know if you can see that or not, but he's carrying a cross. It's not going to be easy. And this is what Jesus is telling the disciples here. But our problem is, we're all caught up in the drama of life, and we don't ever think about what's going to happen at the end of life. If we do, we don't think enough about it. So, there's two questions at the crossroads. One of them I just kind of let on. And, and the first question at the crossroads is this. Am I going to go this way this way? Is Jesus worthy of your life? Is he worth carrying a cross? Is he worth coming to the crossroads of life and saying, you know what? I've got plans. There's things I'd like to do. Some of it I know is contradictory to the word of God, though, and I'm going to follow Christ. So is he worth denying yourself laying self down, and not only putting self down, but taking up a cross and following him. Is he worth that? That's one of the questions I think Jesus is getting at to the disciples there at Caesarea Philippi. He says to Simon Peter, he says, who do people say I am? He says to all the disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? It's Christology 101. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. So we ask ourselves first the question, is Jesus worthy of life? Well, we consider who he is. Consider who he is for a moment. He is the Christ, 
At least that's what Peter says. He's the king. He's the promised one. He's the one and only unique son of God given for you. He came to earth willingly. Is he worthy of your life? The answer is yes. But Peter's just at this infantile stage of following Jesus. He's just beginning to grasp the reality of who Christ is along with the rest of the disciples and what that means. Consider Ecclesiology 101. What's Jesus up to? He says to Simon Peter next, you're going to build, I'm going to build a church. Not a church building. I'm going to build a following of people who are going to carry crosses and deny themselves and they're going to follow me. I want you to look in your Bible real quick at verse 25 again. Verse 25, I think, is key here. It says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, notice that next phrase, for my sake, for my sake. That's key. It doesn't say whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will find it. As if you're going to earn eternal life. You're going to earn your life. No, it says, whoever loses his life, why are you doing it? So you'll find life? No, you're losing your life for my sake. Jesus is very Jesus-centered. Me, my, take up your cross and follow me. Do this for my sake. It sounds like the God of the Old Testament because he is God, the God who says, I will do this for my name's sake. I will do this for my glory. Jesus says, follow me for my sake. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves, is he worthy? Is he the Christ? Is he the son of the living God? But he says he's going to build this church. This church he's going to build is eternal and victorious. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you're part of this church that he's going to build, it's eternal. It's something that's going to last. Is he worthy? And how's he going to build this church? He says to Simon Peter and the disciples. He gets them together and says, boys, the son of man's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to lay down his life. This is soteriology one over one. How are we saved? I gotta go to the cross. I must go to the cross. I must be killed. Now I want you to think about how that sounds for a moment. They're at the crossroads of life, Jesus is saying, follow me. Do this for my sake. Take up your cross and be willing to die for me. That sounds almost cultish. You think of people like David Koresh, most recently in person that come to mind, Jim Jones from many years ago, where people have followed them and they've duped people into following them and, and even be willing to die for them. And Jesus is saying, do this for me, be willing to die for me. But here's the great difference. Soteriology 101, he says, I must go to the cross because the only way you're going to follow me and be a part of my people and be willing to take up your cross and follow me is I'm going to die for you. Now, I'm just not coming to get rid of the Romans. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they don't understand it now. The problem is for the disciples, but he's going to lay down his life for them, for his followers. Is Jesus worthy? This Jesus, who is the one and only Son of God who willingly left heaven, he didn't have to come, who's going to build an eternal and victorious church, who's going to lay down his life for you. Now, what will you do with him? Is he worthy of your life? If you believe this, the answer is yes. 
Peter didn't understand it. Peter said, no, this will never happen to you. You're not going to the cross. That sounds like foolishness. Because for the disciples of where they were at the time, they didn't understand what we do now looking back at the cross and the resurrection. But later, Peter would write these words. Peter himself would write these words and say, we're not redeemed with perishable things, but we're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. What he saw at this point at the crossroads, he didn't fully grasp and understand, but later when the Spirit indwelt him, he exulted and said, yes, he's worthy. Praise God for the blood of Jesus that makes us part of the church. So the first question at the crossroads, is Jesus worthy of your life? The second question at the crossroads, what's gonna happen at the end of your life? What's gonna happen at the end of your life? Notice what he says in verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You're gonna lose your life, but you're gonna find it. What, what, what are you gonna find? You're gonna find it. What is it? It's life. What kind of life is it? Is it talking about abundant life? Jesus talks in other places in scripture about an abundant life, and that's true. Follow Jesus, you will have meaning, you will have an abundant life. But in context here, he is talking about eternal life. Look at what the next verse says in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Reminds me of an old bluegrass song. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? Oh, sinner today, before it's too late, what would you give in exchange for your soul? He's talking about eternity. And so the question is, as Jesus is addressing in verse 24 and 25, what will happen at the end of your life? Will you found that you have forfeited your soul, that you've wasted your life, that in fact you are doomed to spend eternity in hell apart from Jesus? We get caught up, and some of you this morning are caught up in the drama of your life, what's gonna happen next? And all these things, I'm not saying those things are not important. But are we asking ourselves this question, is Jesus worthy of our life? And what's gonna happen at the end of my life? That's what he's saying to the disciples. As they're thinking about having to carry the cross and deny themselves, he's saying, but look, let me encourage you. Think about what's gonna happen at the end of life. You're gonna find life, you're gonna have eternal life. And he's gonna elaborate even more as we move on in these verses. But most of us, by nature anyway, are caught up in the drama of life and we don't want to consider what's going to happen at the end. At the end of this road is hell. It leads to destruction. At the end of this road is the reward of eternal life. So this message is meant to challenge the disciples and it's meant, as it's meant to challenge us, but it's also meant, if you're a believer, to encourage you. So there's two sobering realities here the disciples are faced with. Number one, there can be no church unless Jesus goes to the cross. If Jesus doesn't go to the cross and of course be raised again on the third day, there'll be no church, there'll be no, no, none of God's children, there'll be no eternity, we are doomed, we are without hope, and we might as well live for ourselves. There can be no church unless Jesus goes to the cross, and he does, amen? Second sobering reality, there can be no church members who do not carry a cross. And listen to that and hear it well. There can be no church without a cross and there can be no members of his church who do not carry a cross. You cannot be a child of God 
saved, born again, on your way to heaven unless you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. There is no simple, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus and I'm just going to keep going this way though. No change in my life. That's hogwash. That's the Greek word for nonsense. <laughs> right? There can be no members of the church who do not carry a cross. But I want you to remember what Jesus said to Simon Peter that perhaps he forgot or didn't hear quite well in verse 21. Look at the last five, six, seven words of verse 21. Are you looking at your Bible? He says, and on the third day be raised. Peter says, be killed. That'll never happen. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says to Peter. But did Peter understand or did he hear, did he dismiss the fact that Jesus said on the third day to be raised? You see, death must precede resurrection. And so it is with those who follow Jesus. We must carry our cross, die to self, deny self, carrying our cross. But glory is coming. On the third day he was raised. And for those that deny themselves, follow Jesus, carry the cross, trust alone in him for their salvation. Suffering and death awaits. Hard times await. But resurrection is coming. And so what Jesus does here is to encourage them with these, in these sobering realities, he's given them a lesson in eschatology 101. It's simply a fancy word. It comes from the word eschatos. That means the study or the doctrine of last things. The study or the doctrine of the end or the end times even. It's a subject that covers a lot of things. Heaven, hell, whether it be animals in heaven, whether, you know, all our pets. and I mean, just any kind of question you could think about would be there. But this is the eschatology 101. Jesus goes to the very basics about what's going to happen at the end in the next two verses to encourage the disciples to follow him. Because the problem is, is what we're experiencing now is not what we were expecting. What the disciples were experiencing right at that moment was not what they were expecting. Jesus just said, I'm going to die, now you die. Now follow me. Well, that's truth. So to encourage them to go ahead and follow him, he talks about what's going to happen at the end. So they'll do that and they'll see that it's worth it, that he's worthy and it's worth it to follow him. For Matthew's Jewish audience that he's writing to, what they were experiencing then was not quite what they were expecting. Even after Jesus had risen again, the Jewish leaders over the Jewish people were still rejecting Jesus and the Romans were still ruling over Israel instead of Jesus. What they were expecting was not what they were experiencing. And so when, when this book of Matthew is written and, and Jewish believers primarily read this, it's to encourage them, look, what you see around you is hard and difficult, hard to wrap your mind around, but let me tell you what's gonna happen at the end. Jesus is coming. And he's going to rule. And he's going to reign. Just keep following him. Just keep following him. And what we're experiencing now 
may not be what we were expecting. We hear about LBGTQ curriculum being required in our schools by our own governor. We hear about babies can be aborted up to birth or even right after birth. Or we, we hear, we keep going to the funeral home like we did yesterday. We hear about a young boy from the junior high in the, in the hospital over here struggling for his life. What we're experiencing right now may not be what we are expecting and what we need to be reminded of is our hope that's in the future. This eschatology 101, the very foundational truth, number one, Jesus is going to come in his kingly glory. True truths to share with us before we pray and are dismissed. Number one, Jesus is going to come in his kingly glory. Amen? I mean, that, that's what he says to the disciples here. I mean, look at your Bible, verse 27. He's telling the disciples, I'm going to die. You got to die. <laughs> but think about what's going to happen at the end and think about whether or not I'm worthy. And let me tell you something. In verse 27, he says to them, for the Son of Man is going to come. It's absolutely certain. It's inevitable. Jesus is coming. He will come again. He had told them already on the third day he'll be raised again. If he's risen again, you can be assured he's coming again. His coming is inevitable. His coming is imminent. That means any time, just any day now. Notice it says in verse 27, the Son of Man is coming with his angels in the glory of his Father. He's coming with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then I want you to look at verse 28 as we think about the soon coming of Jesus and how imminent it is he's going to come. Look at what he says in verse 28. It's a controversial verse. Truly I say to you, not to all of us here, but to the disciples that were standing there, the 12 that were there. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, and the word here until is very important, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So they're not going to taste death until, but they are going to taste death. And that's important. Because what he says at the end of verse 28 is when the Son of Man comes in his kingdom, or when the Son of Man comes, he's going to repay each person according to what he has done. So if some of them that are standing there are not going to die until he comes, and the reward they're going to get is later they're actually going to die, that's not much of a reward. So what he's talking about here in verse 28 is not verse 27. It's not the return of Christ that they're going to live because the problem is all the disciples have died and Jesus hadn't come back yet, right? And so people take verse 28 differently. What does it mean then that some of them are still alive when, Jesus, when they see Jesus coming in his kingdom? Some would say that's a reference to the day of Pentecost then when the Holy Spirit comes and the, or the resurrection and they see the power of God coming in that way. Some would say as it's a reference to the kingdom of God coming in power in the early church and the gospel spreading and that some of them would still be alive, the disciples, when they saw that that began to, ha begin to happen. Others like myself just look here and we look at two other places where this is talked about in Mark and, and Luke and see right after that word, you see the Mount of Transfiguration take place where Jesus goes up on a mountain. Look in verse one of chapter 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led him up on a mountain by themselves. So some of the disciples, see, who was it? 
Peter, James, and John, some of the disciples, went up on a mountain by themselves six days later, verse 2, and he was transfigured. A metamorphosis took place. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And they heard a voice from heaven later saying, this is my son, listen to him. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it seems to me what's happening in verse 28 is they're getting a preview of verse 27. Some of them are going to get a preview of what's going to be like when Jesus comes back in his kingly glory. Because up on that mountain six days later, guess what they see? They see Jesus transfigured and they see his kingly glory. They see, uh, they see unveiled deity, no, no restrictions of human flesh. They see the Son of God transformed and he says, Now don't tell anybody about this yet because you've not grasped it yet. You're just going to escalate things and... and cause an uprising of the Jews against the Romans. But they're seeing a preview of Jesus coming in his kingly glory there upon the mountain. And he says that's going to happen before they die. Now, it's also true that Jesus coming, his true return, when every eye will see him is imminent. Now, some people disagree with that point. They, they look at what Scripture says in Matthew 24 and that all the nations will hear the gospel and then the end will come and we know there's many unreached people groups. My fault is that how do we know the, these unreached people groups for sure that some of them weren't reached in generations past? Some of these unreached people groups used to be Christian nations and now are Muslim nations. So some of them, maybe all the... I don't know. So We, we really don't know if... All, all these unreached people groups have been reached at some point in history, these different people-speaking groups. Plus, we look at the early church and the expectation when you read the New Testament, the early church is they believe he could come back in their lifetime. And then Jesus says in Matthew 24 and 25, watch, don't sleep, watch, be waiting. He's coming like a thief. I mean, you can't read the New Testament and not sense the 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 impression upon the minds of the gospel writers, the biblical writers, that Jesus is coming any time. And it's their hope. It's their expectation. They're excited about that. So one of the things that should compel us at the crossroads to take up our cross and persevere and continue to follow Jesus is Jesus is coming in his kingly glory. He's not coming in a manger. The Bible says he's coming riding on a white horse. And you better watch out if you're not one of his because you will not stand on that day at the end of life when Jesus comes on that broad road it will not be good for you he's coming in his kingly glory and let there be no mistake about it when he comes in his kingly glory he's coming with his angels he's coming in the glory of his father no one's going to stop him from repaying each person according to what he has done. And that's back in verse 27. Look at the end of verse 27. The Son of Man's going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Nobody's going to stop him. He will repay each person according to what he has done. So the second truth that's meant to encourage followers of Jesus is he's going to repay us according to what we've done. That could send chills down our spine or if we're believers and followers of Jesus, it's meant to encourage us. When we see the phrase, repay according to what he has done, it makes us sound like, well, 
we better be good enough when Jesus comes back so we can go to heaven. That's how our minds start thinking. Of course, we read in other places of Scripture how we're justified by faith. In fact, we read in verse 21 how he tells the disciples he's going to go to the cross. Well, my goodness, if what's said and done after all is over is we're only going to go to heaven based on the good works that we do, then why in the world did Jesus go to the cross and die then? So that's not what he means. When it says he's going to repay us according to what we've done, ultimately it means this. It means he's going to repay us according to what we've done with Jesus. At the crossroads of life, have we followed Jesus or not? Have we repented and trusted in Jesus and turned and followed him? Or have we just kept on going the same way? Maybe we've mumbled a little profession or something like that. Might have even got baptized. But listen, folks. The proof is in the pudding, so to speak. He's going to repay us according to what we've done. There will be some evidence that a person's following Christ, if they, especially if they live long enough. Sometimes people get saved like a thief on the cross, and you don't have a time to measure any fruit in their life, right? But if a person lives long enough, you're going to, they're going to be able to see, and you're just going to be able to see that that person's following Jesus. Not perfectly, we're always going to need a Savior. If we say we not sin, we're a liar. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're told in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him he will be gathered all the nations with him. Then he will sit on his throne. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You remember that passage of Scripture? He'll say, when you've done it to the least of me, you've done it unto me. He rewards people because they have followed Christ is the implication there, and then their life reflects that. And there's others who say, well, look what I've done. He said, you weren't doing it to me. You weren't doing it for my sake. And so it tells us in that same passage, these will go into way into eternal punishment that's on that broad road. But these others, the righteous into eternal life. Before I close, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. All the disciples are being addressed in Matthew 16, but Peter's singled out after he gives the right answer to one question. So I find it interesting to read what Peter writes later on after these things take place. Later, Peter wrote in 2 Peter about that transfiguration experience and how they'd seen the glory of the Father. But here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about how Jesus is coming again. And he's encouraging other believers who are on that narrow road. And so he says in verse 6 of 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. I was thinking about that when we were singing this morning. Every victory is yours. We were singing to Jesus. We've not seen him. What, what a day it's going to be. When my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day. <laughs> 
Glory! What a day it's going to be. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice. Remember that guy with the smiley face even though he's carrying a cross? You rejoice with joy, inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When he comes, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Jesus says he's going to come with his angels and his Father's glory. He's going to reward each person according to what he's done. That's meant to encourage those who follow Jesus and carry their cross because they're going to obtain the outcome of their faith, the fullness of the salvation of their souls. We're saved now. We're being saved. And we will be saved, saved, saved. No more sin. No more suffering. And we have Jesus. So two points of application. Number one, Jesus is coming, and we're to be encouraged by that. He's coming with his angels and his Father's glory. He's coming in his kingly glory. One of the things we need to realize, since that coming is imminent, that there must be an urgency that marks us as believers, right? Right? There must be, as we're on this narrow road and we're suffering and we're seeking to persevere, we're carrying our cross, but we're also seeking to do his work. There needs to be an urgency about doing his work. He's coming and he's coming anytime. Praise God. We want to take people with us. We want to continue to share the gospel. We believe this place and not say one of these days, but today is the day of salvation. And so today... If I have opportunity, I'm going to talk with this person about the Lord Jesus. There's an urgency to do his work, just like Matt was talking with the youth in Sunday school class this morning in Acts chapter 18. And the apostle says to the people in the, in the synagogue, your blood be on your own hands. I'm innocent. We want to be able to say when Jesus comes back, we want to be able to say, I have shared the gospel with those that God's placed in my path on this narrow road, on my mission field at school, on my mission field at work, the mission field of my family. I'm innocent of their blood. I tried to talk to them. I couldn't talk them into it. I can't, can't talk anybody into being saved, but I have, I have tried to share the gospel. So there needs to be an urgency to do his work, and secondly, there, we keep in mind there's a reward of doing his work. Mandy shared yesterday at her dad's funeral where he worked at Snap-on. He was a quiet man and was a faithful provider. And for every day for 33 years, he did the same thing. Every day for 33 years, he did the same thing. He worked hard. He spent time with his family and loved his family and loved his Lord and loved his church. And folks, as we're on this narrow road, what we're being encouraged, the disciples are being encouraged to do is to just every day one day at a time, be faithful and do the same thing. Live for Jesus, carry your cross, deny yourself. That's not easy. And follow him. Knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. That he's going to reward each person according to what he has done. One day we're going to see it is worth it after all. So I want to ask you again this morning before I close in prayer. Is Jesus worthy of your life? This is the crossroads. And one day, 
you will stand in judgment before Almighty God. And before that day comes, you need to ask yourself these two questions. Is Jesus worthy of my life? What's going to happen at the end of my life? Don't just stay caught up in your life right now, young person. Old person, don't just stay caught up in your life thinking, well, I'll think about this stuff and get serious about this stuff one of these days. This is, this is it. Repent and trust in Christ. Trust in him right now, today. Call upon him. Say, oh God, I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. I want to trust and follow you. And I can plead with you like that and urge you to do that, but I can't cause it to happen in your heart. But if that's the desire that's there, then call upon him. Turn to him right now. Trust in him. Man, we'd love to talk with you if God's working in your, way that, in your heart that way this morning. I'll be standing at the front here. You can come. I'll, I'll talk to you now. I can talk to you after the service is over. Either way, we'll do that and have more time to talk more thoroughly. Repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you followed the Lord Jesus in believer's baptism like Kellen has? Have you stood before others to say, look, I'm no secret believer here, but as, but as someone who has been born again, I'm ready right now to let all these people know, just as I'm commanded in Scripture, that I'm going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that my life is not the same. You need to follow him in baptism and obey what the Lord Jesus says. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and thank you for this gospel, this good news of what Christ has done. We thank you that he's coming. I pray, Father, that our eyes could be looking and waiting and watching. And be, be reminded, Lord, that we just we need to be faithful. That teaching our class or raising our kids to fear Jesus or trying to talk to our friend at school or whatever it is, Lord, it, our labor in the Lord is not a waste of time. So, Lord, encourage your people this morning continue to follow you. And I pray for those who are still on the broad road. Father, I pray that you'd cause them to turn around and follow Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand right now and sing this closing hymn together. And again, as we're standing and singing, I'll be standing here at the front. If you'd like to come and pray uh, alone, that's fine. Or if you'd like to come and let me talk with you about something or pray with you, I'd love to do that. So you come as the Lord speaks. Let's sing together. Well
Ryan Horrell to come. He's one of our deacons that's going to, he's going to close us in prayer this morning again. I'm going to be standing at the back this morning. I'm going to ask Kellen Slater to join me. Uh, his family can join me too if they'd like and let you all encourage him and so forth this morning. We're so proud of him and, and thankful for how God's at work in his life. And I also want to remind you before you leave that uh, a couple of things about our sportsman's dinner, if you will, you can pick up tickets that, uh, to go and sell to folks or purchase for folks. It'd be great too for yourself on your way out this morning. Uh, there's a, also, I need your help. We need your help. We need to get the word out about it. And uh, there's a bunch of posters back there. There's some big ones and smaller ones. And there's a little insert in your bulletin. Would you please take those and get them to different businesses? I've been trying to do that. I can't get them to all of them by myself. <laughs> so uh, would you take those, take them to where you work, hang them up if they let you or, or the gas station or whatever and help us do that and then uh, get the word out. And most importantly, just pray. Pray that we'll be able to have a lot of lost and unchurched people here that'll get to hear the gospel uh, that Saturday in September, okay? And don't forget about the, uh, the youth conference coming up this Saturday. Seems like there's something else I'm supposed to tell you, but I forgot what it was. So uh, come back and worship with us tonight at uh, 6 o'clock, right? Let's bow our heads. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the fact that we can sing to you, confess to you and to each other that it is well with our souls because of what Christ has done. Lord, but uh, we know that that is not the case for everyone in our community. So, Lord, I pray that you would put a burden on our hearts for us to go and share this good news, your gospel truth, that they too can sing it as well. I pray this in Christ's name. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. 
At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus' body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.